This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. <laughs> and so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Bite pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Bite, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon First Bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Michelle Dawson here, and I have the lovely Mr. Craig Coleman, MA, CCC, SLP, BCSF, so Board Certified Specialist in Fluency, ASHA Fellow, and current candidate for ASHA VP of Planning. So Craig, lay it on us. Tell me all the things. Tell me about yourself and what the ASHA VP for Planning does and why you want to run for this role. Sure. So um, the ASHA VP for planning is really the position on the board of directors that oversees the strategic plan. Um, it's also instrumental in collaborating with the Multicultural Affairs Board and with the International Affairs Board. And my strong interest in, in running for this position um, is to really help to develop the street strategic plan to focus on initiatives that really appear to be important to clinicians in the field over the next three to five years. Um, I've had a lot of opportunities over the last six months during the, the campaign and lead up to this process to hear from a lot of amazing clinicians in the field and the work that they're doing. And, and I think, you know, have really tried to identify a number of issues that have come up for people. And I really would like us to develop a strategic plan that addresses a lot of those issues. Um, I think uh, we really need a strong advocate in this position, and I feel like I have uh, developed those skills over the years in my roles as uh, president of the uh, State Association in Pennsylvania twice as we were going through a licensure rewrite. Um, and I've also served on the uh, as a SIG coordinator of uh, the ASHA SIG-4, which is the uh, Stuttering Special Interest Division. I was able to serve on the uh, committee that 
oversaw the updated uh, scope of practice document in 2016. And, and so I think, um, you know, among other things, though, those things have kind of prepared me for this role. And um, I think that uh, it's it, the position really aligns very well with my strengths. Well, I, I'm just grateful that you're willing to serve and volunteer because I've, I've done that for South Carolina. And it is a, unfortunately, an often thankless task. And I mean, we need leaders that are willing to put their neck out, for lack of a better phrase, to seek the change that we all want. So if somebody hasn't voted yet, can you just explain why it's so important, not only that we pay our ASHA dues, but also why we need to vote? You know, historically, about 4% of the ASHA members vote in the elections every year. That's it? It's, it's that low. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that for the most part, a large number of ASHA members have, have not felt engaged over the last several years. And um, I think that's something we need to do a better job of. I've been really excited this year. I feel like uh, the campaigns have really come to social media a lot more this year where people have interacted with the candidates a lot more. And I think that shows much more of an interest. Um, but I, I really hope that people out there just take the time to get to know the candidates um, and really look into what their issues are and, and to, to take part in the voting process. Because, you know, these positions are important as, as the association develops its, its goals over the next several years. Yay. OK, so you heard it first. You heard it right here. Well, probably, I mean, not first because you've been on like everybody's podcast, but like I'm excited about that. But you heard it here on First Fight. Y'all, we have to vote. It's important. You can be the source of change. You can do more in the world. And we need leaders that are willing to dedicate their time and their energies and that also have the support of their loved ones because this is not just a solo task. Trust me. I mean, you got to have some familiar support, especially you referenced middle schoolers, I believe. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's that backing that will change it. So um, Mr. Craig Coleman, MA, CCCSLP, BCSF, ASHA fellow. And again, Craig Coleman, hint, 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 the candidate for ASHA VP of planning. Thank you for being you. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, man. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, 
MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Michelle here, your all things peens SLP. And the guest for today is Craig Coleman, MA, CCC, SLP, board certified specialist in fluency, an ASHA fellow, and current ASHA candidate for VP of planning. And the topic of today falls in the functional category, and we are talking all things stuttering. Now, I heard that laugh. How often have I joked on this podcast? Give me the kid who stutters, and I will make it worse. I mean, in truth, my own son, Mr. Goose Danger Dawson, had some moments of disfluency when he was four years old. So the panicky peds SLP that I am, who doesn't treat stuttering, immediately called on her very sweet friend, Dr. Charlie Adams, who is amazing. And he helped our gooser, this nervous mama, and I am forever indebted to him. Because I'll be honest, as I have a tendency to try to at least to do, Everything that I thought I was doing to help him become more fluent was dead wrong, and I probably made it worse before Charlie intervened. Poor Goose, that firstborn child really is a guinea pig. So on that note, what better way to celebrate May is Better Hearing and Speech Month than a crash course power hour with a guru in the field of stuttering, something that I clearly need. (laughs) Insert self-deprecating humor there. So I, I laugh. This is also very serious. Mr. Craig Coleman is a guru and has been an advocate for our profession, our colleagues, and our patients. So let me introduce the one and only Craig Coleman. Craig, thank you for coming today, and how's it going, sir? Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here with you guys. Yay! Okay, so how in the world did you get where you're at? I mean, you have all of the alphabet soup after your name and uh, a subset of speech therapy that, I mean, I took stuttering a long time ago from Dr. Runyon, but I just remember Runyon's rules and that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. (laughs) You know, a lot lot of people um, would probably find this really interesting, but if you would have asked me after grad school, what's the one area of the field that you won't get into, I probably would have told you stuttering. And when I took my first position as a CF at um, Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, um, my director at the time basically said, hey, we have some kids on the waiting list who stutter. Um, Nobody really likes treating that, uh, so you have to see them. (laughs) Because you're the um, CF. Oh, bless. (laughs) Right, right. Um, But but I really got more and more into it as I did it. And within, you know, four years, I think our – Numbers had grown from about seven kids a week on an outpatient basis that we were seeing from stuttering to about 65. Um, and, and we just developed a program and more people started coming. And, you know, I, I really got into the, the counseling aspect, both with the parents and the kids. And uh, I, re- I really find it fascinating to treat because no two people are the same. Um, that's how I feel about swallowing disorders for pediatrics. So I, I can appreciate it, but I'm on like, totally opposite end of this, but okay. So now I'm, so you were at the, you developed the stuttering center basically at the children's hospital of Pittsburgh. 
And then you've also been involved with um, Ash's special interest group group four. And I can, I can um, account for the hard work on this one. I don't know much about being involved with SIGs other than I absorb their content material, but you're a past president of, is it PISHA? Yeah. The Pennsylvania Speech and Hearing Association. How do y'all pronounce yourselves? You, you did it right. You got Pisha. it. You nailed it. Pisha. Awesome. I, I, I have, I'm the immediate past for Skisha. Um, and I always tease the people over at Georgia that it sounds a little bit better than Gasha because it sounds like a wound. <laughs> and they're all like, Michelle, behave. Okay. So you have, you've been, you've done all these things and, um, and now you're running for the VP, which is very exciting. So um, we wish you well in that. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's it's exciting to think about and um, to be able to advocate for the pre- profession. Yeah, I think I see a lot of similarities in working with people who stutter actually versus um, you know what we need as a profession, and because both ends really need a lot of advocacy. And I think working with people who stutter, uh, especially as you start to work with school age kids, adolescents, and adults, a lot of it is about teaching them self advocacy. And I think that's important for us as a profession as we move forward as well. I could not agree with you more on that. Um, Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, I have like 14 different questions on that, but I'm going to hold that thought till the next section and go right into stuttering with the tiny humans. How about that? Perfect. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. All right. So I, every once in a while in my private practice of me, myself, and I with Heartwood Speech Therapy, I get a email or a phone call or a Facebook message from a family member asking me if I work with children um, who are disfluent. And I politely say no. And then I immediately send them to Charlie over at USC because he's he does the magic, right? And I do not. Um, but I do have, you know, I have been called in to do evaluations in other children. And while I'm there, I pick up on you know, was that a stutter? Was that not a stutter? Do I use the word stutter or disfluency? I don't really know the parameters and I just kind of make a note, but normally I'm in there treating like a bigger picture, um, like getting them off of a feeding tube and oral. And that's kind of where, where I lie, but what are the risk factors that we should look for when assessing a preschool child who stutters? And what are, I mean, like, what should we be looking for there? So that that's one of the main questions I think that people ask about stuttering in general, but about particularly working with young kids who stutter. And the reason is so many kids go through periods of normal disfluency, so it's hard to sometimes weed out what's normal disfluency versus what's stuttering. The thing about trying to discern that is that people often look at the initial severity and see like how much a kid is stuttering, but that's actually not a very reliable risk factor all the time to look at. You know, what you, what you look at is you look at, does the kid have a family history? That's probably the most important thing to look at. If they, if they have a family history of stuttering, uh, particularly persistent stuttering, that is a lot more of a red flag. Who would we be looking for? Because I assume males, but how far back in the family history should we be asking? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I always tell my grad students, well, you know, we, we look at genetics as a risk factor, but the important thing to remember is that family history doesn't necessarily equal genetics. Um, you can have somebody who has no family history of something that when you bring two recessive genes together, all of a sudden they have an offspring that has a condition that didn't appear in the past. 
And so without doing DNA testing on everybody, I'm not sure we'll ever be able to answer that question fully because family history gives you somewhat of an indicator, but it's not 100% reliable. The other thing about family history is that for most people, they can't go back any more than two generations. So most people can give you a fairly good thorough history of themselves. Um, they could give you a history probably for the most part of their parents. Beyond that, though, it's really tough for most people to say, you know, whether or not great grandma stuttered when she was a child or, you know, beyond that, certainly we don't we don't know. So, um, you know, family history is important to look at, but it's also important to understand that if somebody doesn't have a family history, that does not mean there's not a genetic risk. Okay. Okay. Um, so it, go, go ahead. I have, I have so many questions. I'm not a patient person and I'm so sorry. I'm working on that. <laughs> um, this is, and, and trust me, I got that feedback. Don't interrupt Michelle, like, especially talking about stuttering, but squirrel, is it more boys than girls? Well, that was actually the second risk factor I was going to get to. And uh, gender, gender definitely plays a role. What you see in the ratios is when it, when kids are in the early ages and the preschool stages, it tends to be about two to one male to female uh, kids who stutter. As that jumps into the school age and adolescent years and then into adulthood, that ratio jumps to about four to one male to female. So that tells you that a lot more um, males are continuing to stutter than females are. So gender is is probably actually the second biggest risk factor that you could have. Then you start looking at um, time since onset. If a kid's been stuttering for six months, that raises a little bit more of a red flag. Um, certainly any kind of frustration uh, that, that on the part of the child. And I even look at parent concern at times because... Oftentimes, parents, uh, kids get their cues on how to react to things from their parents. Um, so if a parent's becoming concerned, number one, there's usually a good reason why. Um, and number two, kids going to pick up on that and become concerned themselves. We also look at um, kids who have other speech and language disorders as being a, a bit higher risk factor. And then uh, certainly if you start to see you know, physical tension, secondary behaviors, getting into prolongations and blocks. Uh, that would be more risk that we would look at there. Okay. So I'm, I'm dusting off so many layers of books in my head. I remember secondary characteristics being described as at one moment in time, something happened and the child became fluent when they did this behavior. So they associate that behavior with fluency. So like they may like, um, like tap their leg or professor, in grad school, the professor, um, no, it was undergrad. My professor came from Vanderbilt to ODU. So like half of it was taught by one professor and then the other half was taught by like, so we like, we had to change in the middle of the semester and she did the best facial grimaces I've ever seen for, um, like to replicate. And, and she was like, it could look like this. And, and she was, and she was fluent herself, but her modeling, I will always remember that. Um, is that is that a good description for secondary characteristics? Yeah, what happens with secondary characteristics typically is that you know a, a person starts to do those because they're trying really hard to get out of it, um, and so they they just kind of make other movements to try to push it out, and eventually they end up getting out of it. Um, and so what they start to do is associate getting out of it. I got out of it when I tapped my hand or I got out of it when I, you know, nodded my head. I got out of it when I blinked my eyes. Um, but 
what ends up happening over time is, you know, they start to see that that doesn't necessarily uh, work for them very well because that doesn't make any difference at all. And so one behavior just keeps getting replaced by another generally. Like if you, if you sit there and you say, you know, okay, don't blink your eyes anymore. Well, that's all well and good. But if I'm not blinking my eyes, I'm probably doing something else to make up for it. Um, that, that all is driven generally by underlying negative reactions. And unless you address the underlying negative reactions, you're probably just going to keep cycling secondary behaviors in and out. Okay. Okay. All right. So can you, all right. So I have a couple thoughts. One, could you rattle off and model the types of stuttering? Okay. Big picture. Do I say stuttering or disfluency? What's the correct terminology? Uh, depends on what it is. Um, so there's difference between stuttering and disfluency. And this, this really goes back to how important it is to define the term. Most people, when we ask them, even SLPs, I've done, been involved in studies with this uh, in the past, um, that if you ask people to define the term stuttering, most people will say it's a disruption in the flow of speech. Um, that's part of the definition, but that really is the definition of disfluency. We all have disruptions in the flow of speech at times, and we all have disfluencies. Stuttering is much more than that. Stuttering is the disfluency. It's a disruption in the flow of speech, but it's the secondary behaviors that could go along with it. It's the physical tension that could go along with it. It's the negative reactions and thoughts and emotions and feelings that can go along with it. It's the impact on communication that can lead to avoidance, not participating in events or activities or starting conversations with other people. So stuttering is that much broader term where disfluency is just all about the moment of stopping your forward flow of speech. I am very disfluent by that definition because I start and stop and start and stop. Okay, now what is cluttering then? Well, cluttering is a little bit different. So that falls under the fluency disorder umbrella. Um, and but this is why it's really important when, when people are doing evaluations and, you know, diagnosis on a kid to not just say they have a fluency disorder because you really want to distinguish do they have a fluency disorder doesn't help me distinguish whether or not a child stutters or clutters. Um, so really, we want to use the term childhood onset stuttering for a young kid if that's what it is. Um, we want to use the term cluttering. We want to use the term neurogenic or psychogenic stuttering if it's a person who fits under that category. What is that? Um, I've never well, heard of that. Okay, so let me just start. Let me just finish the cluttering one, and then I'll come back because that all falls under the same umbrella. Kids who clutter in in general, people who clutter, um, tends to be a bit different with stuttering. Number one, the main difference is uh, people who clutter have much less ability to self monitor and are much less self-aware of their speech than people who stutter. So for people who clutter, um, they generally are not aware of the impact of the way that they're speaking on how it might be affecting their communication with others. People who stutter are generally very hyper aware of that. Um, so the other main difference is though with cluttering, you could have kids who just talk really fast and run words together so a sentence like, I went to the store to buy some milk might be like, I went to the store to buy milk. And so, you know, it's very hard to understand what that is out of context. Um, well, it, yes, it's, it's very difficult to, to have high intelligibility a lot of times with people who clutter if it's significant. Um, the, the other thing about cluttering is you often see an impact in uh, writing 
where people generally don't stutter when they write. Um, but, but they cluttering, you see that same pushing together of words. Um, you see just a general disorganization of cluttering where when people talk or write, there's a lot there, but there's not a lot there in terms of information. So you could read a whole page and you could still have no idea what's happening after a page. Or you can listen to a person talk and it just seems to go in a circle that doesn't really go anywhere. Much higher prevalence of learning disabilities, underlying language disorders in people who clutter uh, versus people who stutter. Now, neurogenic and psychogenic stuttering are a bit different. Um, neurogenic stuttering is caused by some underlying neurological event. So that could be like a stroke, a traumatic brain injury, drug overdose. Uh, but there's some neurological event that is causing the person who never had a history of stuttering to begin stuttering. Psychogenic stuttering is caused by an underlying psychological disorder. So that's a person starting to stutter because they have the psychological disorder. Now that's not the same as faking it. Malingering is something completely different where people do that for a specific reason. And that's usually to get something or get out of something. Um, but psychogenic stuttering is a legitimate type of stuttering where people have a psychological disorder and that leads to them stuttering. Okay. So, but back to the neurogenic, I'm thinking of a kiddo on my caseload. I do have one little boy in my caseload who has Down syndrome, um, autism spectrum disorders. He's also disfluent and we have, uh, and he has the absolute best peanut butter jelly time song you have ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> but how would one diagnose for a case like that? And I'm not treating the disfluency. I'm treating feeding, swallowing, and functional communication. And the guru school SLP gets him for arctic phonology and does, um, you know, treatment with the stuttering. But how... How would you discern, is it onset, childhood onset of stuttering versus neurogenic stuttering? Generally, those cases are considered to be childhood onset with the understanding that there is a much higher prevalence of stuttering in uh, people with Down syndrome than there is the general population. Is there so really? there is a much higher uh, prevalence. It's about 1% of the adult population who stutters. Uh, that, that holds for school age up to adults for the general population. In Down syndrome, that, that percentage can run as high as 13%. I had no idea. Yeah, so it's, it's much, much higher. With neurogenic stuttering, you would actually need to have some kind of event, neurological event that happened where the person had no history of that brain difference before and now they have it. Okay. So what about our um, uh, NICU, PICU, CBA, intraventricular hemorrhages, like, you know, were preemies, would that, if, if they came out and had that as a PMH, um, um, would, where would we fall there if we had strokes on record? Would that be neuropsych? I'm just thinking from like a like a ICD-10 code, how would you code so for that? It would be really important for the speech pathologist there to work really closely with the neurologist to be able to look at the MRI information to determine whether or not they feel like the MRI information is leading them to believe that the speech and language areas of the brain could be impacted. If that were the case, then I certainly think you could make the case for neurogenic. Okay. 
All right. I'm the um, backstory. I'm the crazy person who does not believe in childhood apraxia of speech. I believe in acquired apraxia of speech because every kiddo that has come to me and crossed my proverbial doorway, i.e. me going to their homes and doing therapy or meeting them at a clinic, um, when we've chased it, we have found a bleed, a trauma, something. And um, with neuro on board or developmental peds on board saying, yes, this is actually acquired apraxia of speech. And that has taken precedence. And um, I have seen that be more often than not the case. So I'm just, I'm just kind of, okay. Now, when I was a student a million years ago, because there's a lot of gray hair, like neuroimaging was just starting to be utilized for children and adults that were disfluent or I guess stuttered. So do we see a difference in, like, I remember there was the debate where they write hemisphere dominant for language or are they left hemisphere dominant for language? Is that still like, I mean, I do not keep up with my stuttering research because I don't treat this. So is there, is there any truth to that now? Well, you know, it's interesting because that pretty much goes back to the cerebral dominance theory, which was, kind of most prevalent in the like 1950s through 70s where people looked at handedness as being an issue. Um, But really that's been proven not to be the case at this point. What a lot of neuroimaging studies are finding now that, um, and, and this is where the field is getting kind of exciting because really we're just getting into doing neuroimaging studies with kids right now, which is really where you have to do those types of studies as kids develop stuttering. When you, st- when you look at them with adults, which has been mainly done to this point, um, it's hard to say whether or not a, a person has that neurological profile and that's what's caused the stuttering or if years of co- stuttering have changed the neurological profile. Um, and so, you know, you, you can't really say that for 100% certainty. Um, so when, when you look at, though, the, the neuroimaging stuff that's being done, almost every neuroimaging study has looked at different parts of the brain, and they all come back showing that people who stutter have very different neurological patterns for when they speak. Their brain doesn't look any different than a person who doesn't stutter, but when they speak, what's actually working inside their brain looks different, but that actually seems to be a little bit different depending on the individual study that's being done, but, but there does seem to be some pretty significant differences. In general, right now, it seems that people who stutter um, generally use slightly more areas of their brain during speech than people who don't stutter. Interesting. Okay. Now, is there a genetic, when you were talking about the genetics, it's, are they starting to find like certain chromosomal abnormalities or duplications or reductions are a dead ringer for like, if you have this, you are more likely to stutter or no? Well, you know, that's a, a good question, too. So a lot of the genetics research that's been done has shown that there are genetic differences in people who stutter. Um, but, you know, it's pretty elusive at this point to say which exact specific strand of DNA is responsible. There's been a few that have been implicated. Um, there, there's some specific genes that have been implicated. Um, if, if, if people are interested in finding more about that, there's a guy named Dennis Drana who uh, works for the NIH, the National Institute of Health, and his work has really focused on genetics and stuttering. I would definitely do some searches for him and, and look at it. Now, Drana is not a speech pathologist. He is a geneticist, but he happens to have a particular interest in stuttering. So almost all of his research that he's done has been on 
genetics and stuttering. Does is he does he stutter or does he have a loved one no. that does? I, I'm not sure about that, but I know he doesn't. Um, but that's absolutely fascinating. What a mission yep. with your work. That's so cool. Okay. And he, his work is really good. I mean, he's done a lot of really good work. Um, there, there was actually just a study that came out a couple of weeks ago that was, I can't remember who did it, but um, it was really fascinating because it was the first study that looked at treatment outcomes versus genetic profile. And what they found was that if you had the gene mutations that they have, that Drainus work has suggested or implicated, and people just did fluency shaping therapy, they actually had less of a chance of getting to a certain point of fluency than people who didn't have those genetic markers, which is a really fascinating thing because for years and years, a lot of SLPs have been telling you know people who stutter, if you just practice more, if you just try harder, if you just do this, you can accomplish this and get fluent. Turns out genetically that might not be possible for some people. Oh my goodness. Okay. I, I will, I will have, I, we have to learn more. I have to know all the things now. This is absolutely fascinating. How do you spell this man's last name? Dennis? Uh, it's D-R-A-Y-N-A. I'm so glad you spelled that. Thank you. Cause I would not have spelled it that way. <laughs> I mean, it in the Google. <laughs> so, okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. So we, we've hit a ton of risk factors and this is absolutely fascinating. Okay. What do parents do when, oh wait, stop, go back. What are the different types of stuttering? Can you rattle those off really quick before we- Okay, so different types of stuttering. Now we have the neurogenic, the psychogenic, and childhood onset stuttering. But if we're talking about the types of disfluencies, types of disfluencies there would be your sound, syllable, word, phrase repetitions, um, prolongations, blocks, interjections, revisions. Okay, perfect. Okay, so that's how I phrase that. Types of disfluencies. Okay, got it. All right. I just wanted to close that loop. Now, if parents get nervous and if they have concerns that their child is presenting with some disfluencies and say maybe it hangs out long enough to actually turn into a stutter, what, and there are a fair few bit of parents that actually listen to this, so what should they do? What course of action should they take? You know, my recommendation for people at an early age in particular is always for parents, if you are concerned about it, go see a speech language pathologist who has some experience in stuttering. Um, And, you know, I know I've had too many bad experiences over the years with, um, you know, pediatricians making referrals to just kind of wait and see and saying, oh, he's two or three or four, that's too young. And that's not based on any reliable information at all. That's just somebody making that up and saying he's too young. Um, there's, there's nothing out there that says two, three, four is too young to do speech therapy for stuttering. Because what we know about stuttering is that if, if you get to it early, you have a much better chance of an outcome where the kid doesn't stutter at all anymore, or he stutters pretty minimally, versus if you wait till a kid is eight, nine, and 10. And then the chances of it going away, even with therapy, go down pretty significantly at that point. Okay. All right. So you said you can even do it down to two and three. Is there, is there a common evolution uh, with respect to the actual disfluencies, like the types of disfluencies? Do they start as like part word repetition or initial syllables, or is it just unique to every kiddo at that stage of the game? 
this is where it makes it really tough for some people because for some kids, they start with that evolution. They start with just doing some repetitions and repeating, and then they build up to prolongations and blocks. For other kids, they might the day before have had no disfluencies at all, and all of a sudden the next day they woke, wake up and they block and can't get anything out. Both of those onsets are not atypical of childhood onset stuttering. Okay. I have seen both of those. One of one of my dear girlfriends called and she was like, baby girl woke up and all of a sudden she can't talk. She's stuttering. I was like, what? Call Charlie. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> I was new Charlie. Poor Charlie's going to listen to this and be like, Michelle, quit talking. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's scary for a parent. I mean, when you're, you, you, the day before your kid was you know talking completely fluently and all of a sudden now they, they are blocking and can't get anything out. But that's people get really concerned about neurological indicators there. Yeah. Um, but I would. usually, usually there are not other neurological indicators, um, and and about fifty percent of the time, that's that's about how stuttering starts. Okay, we we had that with our gooser. He's six now, but when he was four, he was doing a lot of um, but 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 but, and then he would spit out the rest of his sentence, as my daddy would say. My, you know, I grew up in the farm out in the country in Virginia and my daddy would say, boy, just spit that out. <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't think that helps daddy. <laughs> yeah. That's probably, probably not the best speech therapy approach. Yeah, I know. But I mean, you know, he, he works for the government, totally different can of worms, but yeah. He also put me on the back of a cow one time, slapped the cow on its rear and said, hold on tight. And I went for a ride down a hill on the back of a cow, but definitely different lifestyle growing up. Okay. All right. So the parent has the concern. They see most likely their pediatrician first. Hopefully they're given sage advice of follow up with a speech therapist. They can actually be diagnosed with stuttering at the age of two, three, and four years of age. And our audience is early intervention. So this is our world that we are in. Then they get to a speech therapist. Two questions. Is this something that falls within the parameters and scope of an SLPA or would this be like the treatment or would this be a speech like actual speech pathologist? Because I know we've different states have speech pathology assistants licensed and then different states do not. So is this- Boy, that's a, that, that would be a tough one. And you know, I always put myself in the position of a parent here and knowing what I know about the field, would I want an SLPA to treat my preschool child who stutters? And I would have to say the answer to that would probably be no. And the, the reason for that is that in a lot of universities now, stuttering is not a required course you have to take as an undergraduate. And I, I think with no required coursework in that area, I would not want my kid to be treated by somebody who never had well, it would, any work in that area. Yeah. And ethically, that would not be, if you've never had a class in it, ethically, you're not allowed to touch that. Um, and, and that's, I mean, with oral pharyngeal dysphagia and feeding therapy, that's a seed level speech pathology requirement. SLPAs are not allowed to, um, I'm, I will be so excited when ASHA finally rolls out the SLP certification, because I feel like all of these questions will just be black and white right there. And yeah, that's a, that's a different issue, I guess, but (laughs) I'm old enough to remember, I was actually on the legislative council for ASHA when they tried this the last time and it did not go well and and they took it away after about a year. What? Um, Oh my goodness. I'm so excited for the updates because, um, we have CSAP 
and at CSAP, the Council of State Association Presidents. Well, you know CSAP. And yeah. um, also, people that are listening, seriously, join your state associations. If you are not involved with your state associations, you will not be able to see these amazing things come to fruition because your state has to advocate to put any national policy in place. So get involved. All right. I like to put little call to actions in where I can. But, <laughs> yeah, that's um, great. I agree. Yeah. But um, they were talking about it was only 18 months away before they're going to roll it out. So it should be here in 2020, 2021 at the latest. So, um, okay. Squirrel, back to what we're doing now. Now, um, treatment options. So we get them to, they see the pediatrician, pediatrician sends them to an SLP with their C's and the SLP with their C's does what? Because all I remember was in grad school being taught to cut out some bubbles and some cars <laughs> and being told that we're going to drive that car slowly. And you turn those bubbles into clouds and you do deep breathing. And I feel like I probably have forgotten all of the theory and functional stuff behind that, but I liked fun shaped scissors. <laughs> so like, <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> all right. So there, there's three types of different therapy categories for young kids who stutter. One is to go the, the route of indirect therapy. With indirect therapy, you're basically training the parents on modifications that they can make at home to be able to facilitate fluent speech. That would be like slowing their rate of speech down. Um, slowing the parents' away. rate? Yes. So, you know, you have the, you teach the parents to use kind of a Mr. Rogers speech, and they put in pauses between their phrases, just like I'm doing now. Um, so you can you do that. You have them take away time pressure, speaking demand. Um, you have them try to reduce competition for talking time. You train them to use indirect prompts saying things like, I wonder what you did at school today. Maybe what you can tell me what you had for lunch. Um, let's see if this ball is big rather than asking direct demand questions. That is so counter to everything else we do in the world of early language. Cause it's all open-ended questions. Cause we're trying right. to get, yes. Okay. Well, and then one of the other things we actually do is, is very supportive of the language, which is recasting and rephrasing. So, you know, what, what we do there is if a kid says something like, I w w w want a ball, you say, oh, you want the big blue ball in the corner. So, you know, that allows a good language model, a good fluency model, but it also sends the message to the child that they can still get stuck and their message was still received and the listener understood them. So it's an expansion tool, but it's also a tool just to kind of reassure them that their point got across. Now, indirect therapy was very popular for a long, long time when people believed that Wendell Johnson's diagnosogenic theory of stuttering was true, which was that if you talk about stuttering at all with a kid, you're going to make them stutter forever. Now, we know now that that's not true. Um, so I tend to use indirect therapy for a very short time mainly about four to six sessions and, and teach the parents those strategies, basically one or two sessions at a time, go over those things with them, teach them a lot about stuttering. And then I move the client into more direct therapy for those who need to go that way. Now for, for some kids, maybe about 20, 25%, all they'll need is the indirect component and because they're just kind of on the border. They have the risk factors, stuttering a little bit. You do some of those modifications, they'll be okay. Other kids are going to need more direct therapy. And so that looks a lot like the therapy that we do with 
school-age kids, adolescent kids, and beyond, where we just you know work with them to teach them some basic strategies. We do it in a more child-friendly way. This is where your bumpy and smooth roads come in, where you can say, okay, this is what bumpy speech is like. This is what smooth speech is like. Um, this is what hard bumps are like. This is what uh, uh, easy bumps are like. We could teach them the difference between turtle talk, where we go nice and slow, just like this, and do the same thing. We teach the parents for the indirect treatment. And then we can contrast that with rabbit talk, where you go really fast like this. Oh, like me, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, gotcha. (laughs) We we can also teach them like uh, kangaroo speech, where they hop on their words and they bounce like that. We could teach them snake speech, where they slide on their words. But mainly we're teaching them to do things like, you know, easy starts, turtle talk. And, And we do that you know, in a, in a way that's child-friendly and easy terms that they can understand. And we're, we're trying to contrast the, those different ways of talking and just play around with them. Because what we're trying to do is teach them different ways to do things without sending the message that stuttering is bad and fluency is good. And that's something that we have to be very careful of. And then the, the third type of, of category that you can take is more operant. Um, and that's something like the Lidcomb program for for young kids where, you know, that's pretty much a praise punishment system where when the child's fluent, you say things like, oh, I really like the way you said that. That was smooth. Great job. When the child is disfluent, you say, oh, that was bumpy. Can we say it again? Now, I'm not as big of a fan of that because I don't think it really teaches anything, number one. Um, And number two, I just have seen kids over the years shut down a little bit from it. So, you know, I think we got to be careful with those types of approaches, but my approach is much more a combination of indirect and direct. I'm just thinking, I mean, I have two, I got two boys and both of them are just as sweet as sugar. And when I raise my voice, because I mean, you can only have so many fart jokes in a household (laughs) before like I am done, right? And so I'm like- Wait wait till they get to middle school. Oh my God, stop. We're just trying to teach the four-year-old wipe his own katukas and this is not going well, but like, but like when I raise my voice, my six-year-old goes, mom, you're hurting my ears and you're taking pennies from my bucket because like the counselor taught them all about this pennies in the bucket thing. And I'm thinking, boy, when I was your age, I would have been told, go out and get a switch. So like, and here we are. Having, but like that, that method of telling them that it's wrong and to do it better. I'm just, I, as a mom, that hurts my heart a little. Um, just knowing how sweet, soft spirited my own two tiny humans are. I mean, you know, now my brothers, they probably would have done fine with that. But like, Well, you know, I, I think most people, when they say they use an approach like that, they, they don't really do it. They, they still use components of indirect. I think they don't actually punish that much. There was a study that came out about a year or two ago, and it looked at how much for those operant pr- approaches, it looked at how much parents are actually praising and punishing and um, just recording them at home. And it turns out that the, that every for all the sent utterances that kids did that were fluent, parents only praised them about 8% of the time. Wow. Okay. For all the utterances that were disfluent, the parents only corrected them about 1% of the time. And I think that's largely because parents intuitively probably understand this is probably not the best idea in terms of reaction. 
Um, so the, the question then becomes, if it's only being used 1% of the time, is it really making any difference at all? Yeah, I was right. And, and I always t- teach my you know, grad students when we talk about this, I, I say, I use the analogy of a diet. If, if you're going to go on a diet and I said to you, um, let, let's say I was doing something really extreme and I said, every time you go to get a candy bar, I'm going to give you an electric shock. Okay. If you knew that you only had a 1% chance of actually getting the shock, would it impact your decision at all whether or not to get the candy bar? And they all, they all say no. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to eat that chili chocolate candy bar that is sitting in my freezer because it's best served chilled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and plus I'm going to take my shot that this is going to be one of the 99% times that I'm not going to have any consequence of it. Yeah, yeah. That's human nature. Right. Interesting. Okay. All right, so... How much of your, how much of this is coaching? Because I know in the AI world, there was the big um, athlete article that came out mm, last summer about um, the importance of coaching for carryover and implementation of a home exercise program and that we should be doing more coaching model than actual um, direct treatment, especially with tiny humans. And You know, for preschoolers, I think it's critical because any intervention program you look at or model that you look at for stuttering in preschoolers relies so heavily on parent involvement. So I think, you know, as you get into doing direct therapy, there is definitely a component that you're working directly with the child to teach them things. And I think that's really important. But if you don't have that parental buy-in for these kids in the preschool level, boy, it's going to be really tough to make progress. Uh-huh. All right. Which approach do you primarily use yourself or have you seen to be the most effective? Starting well, with the coaching and then moving in? What I tend to do is I start with the indirect therapy for about the first four to five, six sessions. And then for the kids that need it, I'll move more direct because even with the kids that need to go more direct, that first four to six sessions of educating the parents, talking about some modifications they can make at home is still going to be beneficial because they're still going to have to do those things at home. Um, but, but it lays the foundation. And then I look at direct therapy as sort of building on that foundation. Um, so I, I use that combination between the indirect and direct with the indirect only a few sessions, though. I would never go like indirect only for like a year. I've heard people do that before, and, and I'm not really sure why. If a person is not making progress off of that indirect therapy where you're not really doing anything to their speech, you're just modifying the environment and it doesn't work at all, I, I think I would move away from that quickly. Um, I, I got a call a couple of years ago from a parent and um, she said to me, you know, we've been doing indirect therapy for a year now and it's not really had any impact at all and we feel like we need to go more direct. And I said, yeah, absolutely. If it's been a year, I think you need to, to make a change. And she said, okay, great would you be willing to work with my son to do that? And I said, well, sure. And I explained to her, you know, I would probably go more direct. Here's how we do it. And she said, okay, well, the only problem is we need to go more direct, but we can't talk to him about stuttering. And I said, said, well, well, how do we plan on doing that? (laughs) And she said, well, we we need to go more direct, but I don't want to talk about stuttering. I said, okay, let me just run this scenario by you. I said, you know, we're in therapy one day and we're working on doing easy starts. And so I say, okay, today we're going to work on easy starts. And he looks at us and he says, why? I said, how do you plan on dealing with that? And she goes, well, we'll just make something up. And I said, no, <laughs> we, we don't operate that way. So, I mean, but I talked to her for a good 35 to 40 minutes and she would just 
was very afraid to talk about the word stuttering with the kid and wouldn't do it. And so, you know, I eventually got to the point where I said, I, I don't think I'd be the right fit to see him because that would not be the approach that I would take. And so that fear of the word stuttering even cripples a lot of people because they feel like if the child hears it, it's going to, you know, start some kind of war in their brain of like, oh my God, I stutter because that's what the parent's feeling. Parents need to remember that a lot of times the child is not feeling the advanced emotions that they could, that they might be feeling frustrated, they might be feeling upset, but they're not worried about whether or not they're going to go to college when they're three. Yeah, no, they're um, worried about whether or not you're going to let them have a second round of Team Umizumi before nap time. Right. <laughs> so like priorities, people. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a parent one time who, who literally asked me for like a five-year-old said, you know, do you think that he's going to be able to go to college if he stutters? And I said, look, he's five. Like right now he's worried about whether he gets the red or the blue Play-Doh. He's not worried about <laughs> like going to college. We, we can't go down that road right now because like in a year from now, he may not even be stuttering. He might, but he might not. Be. But but if if kids start to pick up on that's how their parents are feeling, it's gonna it's gonna cause concern for them because they're gonna see how upset their parents are. And you know, th there's some interesting research about discrimination out there that shows that when people talk about the possibility of being discriminated against, that's actually as powerful for that person as actually being discriminated against. And so if a kid starts to hear at a very early age. I might not be able to go to college because I stutter. I might not be able to get a job because I stutter. Maybe I won't be able to have a good life because I stutter. That's what the kid's going to believe. Negative self-talk starts early. It does. Okay. That leads me to the next question. When is it appropriate to involve psychology, either for the family or for the child? Do you make those referrals? Because I've had to make those referrals, but for, I mean kids are in palliative care and hospice. And I'm like, we, you guys have to take care of you. So I view it from, we need psychology in our world, but from on this side of it, what role does that have? Well, I think it's important for us to make referrals on a couple different ends. Number one, I've made a lot of referrals over the years to family counseling for, for family issues that I have picked up that were outside of the realm of communication disorders. Uh, whether that's, you know, anxiety issues, whether that's just general parenting issues or behavior issues. And, you know, as kids get older, you can make referrals to psychologists if you think that the emotional and, and cognitive needs or thought processes based on areas that are not communication disorders related. So like if I feel like a kid has a anxiety disorder versus they're anxious because they stutter, an anxiety disorder needs to be referred to a, a different professional. They're anxious because they stutter. That's my domain to treat. Okay. All right. So then I'm, I'm just thinking of um, all the kiddos that I worked with a million years ago when I was in grad school, and I just feel like I owe them an apology. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Okay. All right. We have um, – we have, I'm going to preface this, we have roughly 10 minutes left, but um, five minutes of that has to be earmarked for Q&A. Okay. So with five to maybe seven minutes, because um, sometimes I can get a little bit extra time, um, can you rattle off what resources are available 
for clinicians who are working with children that stutter? Um, and then what resources are available for families? Because I feel like that might be yeah. a different pot of supplies. Sure. Um, so one resource I really like for um, clinicians, a couple resources. Number one is the ASHA Practice Portal on Childhood Stuttering. Um, I love the dysphagia one. I haven't been to the stuttering one. I, I had the opportunity to serve on the committee that built the practice portal for childhood stuttering. I think it's a great resource. Um, but, you know, there, there were seven or eight really good people involved in that project. We took a lot of time to develop it, and I think it's a really good resource. Um, clinicians, self-disclosure. Um, what I'm going to say next is is a company that I part own. I have a company called Stuttering Academy. Um, where uh, we do some, you know, quick 10 to 15 minute on demand types of webinars that, that are short about like different um, topics related to stuttering that, that people just have, like they pay a fee for a whole year and then it's sort of like the Netflix of stuttering. Um, oh, and then, that's awesome. <laughs> then, then they have um, access to it for the whole year. Um, and uh, parent wise, you know, there's some really good organizations out there. There's the Stuttering Foundation. Uh, there's the National Stuttering Association. Uh, there's Friends, the organization for people who stutter. I, I highly recommend all three of those. I think that they they all do amazing work for people who stutter. Okay, so this National Stuttering Association, I feel like I've seen them come to Skisha, and I feel like I remember them having a booth at ASHA. What exactly do they do? Well, the National Stuttering Organization or National Stuttering Association is really a support a national support group. So it it they're task is really to uh, is for people who stutter um so they do a lot of advocacy for people who stutter they will sponsor some ceu events for clinicians um they sell materials that, you know that will help clinicians but they also set up local chapters uh, throughout the country where people can be, become involved in meeting other people who stutter and it's a really good way to get to know the stuttering community is, are they as, I mean, are, is it as tight knit community like our deaf community? Ah, uh, yeah, I would say it's fairly close. Okay, cool. Okay. Okay. Well then with your last three minutes, what were, um, words of wisdom do you have for a clinician who is currently treating a child or working with a, um, within the early intervention setting with a child who stutters? If you could go back and tell your past self don't do this, do this, try this. What would you tell the clinicians now? One mistake I think that people make when working with young kids who stutter is they try so hard to eliminate the stuttering, they sometimes forget to send the message to the child that it's still okay if they stutter. And, and that can be a tough thing to pivot from because if, if you just do nothing but fluency, fluency, fluency for two or three years, and then the kid ends up being a kid who stutters for long term, it's very hard to say, okay, we've been trying to be to do everything we can to be fluent for the last three years. Now it's okay to stutter. And you know what I try to do in therapy and really kind of work with the parents on is seeing, okay, here's some here's the things that we can work on. Here's what we're gonna, what we're going to try to do to help him get through this. Um, but it's still okay to stutter, and we have to allow him the, the child to understand that. We have to you know point that out sometimes, like. Hey, you know what? That was a little bit bumpy, but it's okay if your if your speech is bumpy sometimes. I still want to hear what you have to say. Talking is the most important thing. A, a lot of kids, if you say something like that, they'll instantly improve their reactions. 
and, and how they view it. Um, but I, I think that's a really key point for, for people to just focus on doing the things you need to do in therapy, but also building the self-confidence of the child and letting them understand that stuttering is not something to be afraid of. It's something that can be talked about openly, honestly. Um, it can, it's something that, that should be discussed with the parents and the kids from a very early age. Now, you may not use the word stuttering with a two-year-old because they don't understand what that abstract term means. You may have to say bumpy speech. Um, so I, but, but I do think even if you use that term, bumpy speech, it's okay, but you still want to be, you know, kind of having some discussion about, you know, that, that it's, it's okay to do this and, and talk a little bit differently. And, you know, everybody still needs to listen to you. Hmm. That's sweet. You're, you're giving them their muchness to quote Alice in Wonderland and the Mad Hatter, <laughs> but, but they need that because because that's what we're in it for. Sweet. Oh, okay. All right. Let me not let my Irish league pull it together, Michelle. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, folks that are listening, thank you for listening to this ever so special episode. Um, I will be honest. I will probably continue to not treat um, unless it's in conjunction with, because it is now very well aware to me how much I don't know about this and it's outside of my scope, but I'm utterly fascinated and now need to take classes so that I can treat. <laughs> so yay for Michelle process improvement. Uh, okay. But if you're out there listening, don't forget to vote in this year's ASHA election elections. If you want to see change in our profession, it is up to you. So come December, I don't want to hear nobody fussing about, oh, I got to pay my dues. If you don't like how something's being done, you got to vote. So um, Craig, hold the line and let me switch over to the questions, okay? Okay. Hey, Michelle here. Did you know that First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional is partnered up with FeedingMatters.org? That's right. Our pod courses and webinars can be found on the FeedingMatters.org uh, learning center. Also be sure to mark your calendars for two days of evidence-based education on pediatric feeding disorders, the entirely virtual 2020 international pediatric feeding disorders conference. That's right. On January 24th through 25th, 2020, join pediatric feeding leading experts for intermediate and advanced level sessions, no matter your location. For more information, visit ipfdc.org. One more time, that's ipfdc.org. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.